I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equos. As an exchange, Equos is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equos currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Andrew Steinwald with me today, the managing partner at Surfermion. Andrew, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Um, I reached out to the lovely folks on Twitter, and I said I wanted to start talking to people about this concept of NFTs and this marriage of virtual worlds and digital assets and chains. So for those that are not familiar with NFTs, that is a non-fundable token. And we'll talk all about what that means. And there's also these ideas of the metaverse, where we'll also talk about that. A little shout out to Neil Stevenson uh, from Snow Crash, where I believe he coined that phrase. And so let's talk about you first before we get too far down into all of the work that you're doing in this world. You know, how did you get here? What did really inspired you uh, to really become an investor in this space? Um, and what inspired you to focus on this particular aspect of digital assets? Yeah, so I first got exposed to crypto in the tail end of 2013. I was uh, in college at the time and I was buying Bitcoin at around 200 bucks and it went up to 1,000. And I, there was a very short period of time where I believed that I was the next uh, Warren Buffett. You know, I was, I was, I'm a genius. I'm so smart. It's incredible, you know. And then that quickly ended because it, you know, dropped right back down 200 and I freaked out and sold everything, right? So uh, it was a very quick introduction to crypto and the bubble cycles and, and uh, kind of that whole aspect. But at, at the time, I was reading the forums to, you know, get all my information. And everyone on the forums, they were saying that, okay, you know, Bitcoin is dead, but blockchain will survive. Blockchain is this real know, the, the real deal. It's, a, it's amazing technology that's going to radically transform so many aspects of our, our business and internet, et cetera. And so I became a big blockchain, not Bitcoin kind of guy. And I moved, so I dropped out of college. I moved to the Middle East to work for a Saudi hospitality conglomerate called the Fiki Group. And it's, it's very random, but I was doing that for a number of years. And actually while I was out there in 2014, I discovered Ripple and, you know, I was living in Dubai at the time and being in Dubai, I was like, oh my gosh, like Ripple is going to take over the world. It's going to, um, you know, it's perfect. It's for remittance. And, you know, once a month, everyone gets their salary in Dubai and you see people lining up around the block and they're getting charged five, 10% to send money back home. And 
So I so I was just I was such a ripple guy, and uh, tried a few things, kind of you know ideas over there involving Ripple and, and blockchain. Uh, nothing panned out whatsoever. Um, I moved back to the states in around mid 2016, and I wanted to focus on crypto and blockchain. And I'm, I'm not technical, so it was a very tough time to you know try and talk to my friends about this stuff and try to get them to team up with me to start a business. Um, but you know in, during that period of time, I'd been researching and investing. I became more, uh, I, st- I still at that point, I'd say I was more of a blockchain, not Bitcoin kind of guy, but I thought, okay, the, the speculative nature of these assets, possibly I can, you know, earn a return. And that's when um, basically 2017 happened where, you know, everything went completely crazy. And I thought, okay, you know what, right now it's mostly speculation, but this is going to turn into a legitimate asset class and it's going to be absolutely massive, right? I'm talking about the transformation of uh, value of finance and money itself. And so I was like, okay, I need to uh, jump in. I, I launched uh, Polynexus Capital, which is a traditional crypto asset fund. Mm-hmm. I launched that with my partner Dan Patterson. He's a, a private. He, he was a private equity guy uh, based out in Hong Kong. Moved back to Chicago with me, and we launched that in July of 2017. And so we we've been operating that, still operational today, still still around, which is which is great. Um, but one thing that we learned is that it's extremely difficult to you know generate sustains returns and basically beat beat Bitcoin over uh, a long, very long period of time. And um, we, we were really kind of looking at, okay, what niche within crypto can we kind of focus on and specialize at? And that was when I was, it was in 2019, it was February 2019, I went to NFTMIC, which is the big NFT conference. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the consensus for NFTs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was at that conference and I remember I saw, I saw a guy sitting down on his iPad and I just walked over to, over to him and said, hey, you know, my name's Andrew, nice to meet you. And I talked to this guy for something like four hours. I, I don't remember any of the conversations uh, of any of the speakers, but I remember being totally uh, enthralled by this conversation because what he basically laid out was the thesis, the thesis that I have today, which is that NFTs enable a true metaverse to form because they give us property rights. Mm-hmm. What that means, you know, we'll go more into that, but um, I basically knew right away that NFTs were going to be a, perhaps a, possibly a bigger asset class than crypto. And I, and I pretty much believe that now, um, even though I'm like an ultra, ultra crypto bull, but um, I knew I, w- I was like, this is, I have to specialize in this. I have to double down because this is the opportunity here is incredible. And it really leads to the formation of a metaverse. So, you know, that's, that's society altering, not just changing of money and value and finance. That's like changing uh, human, human behavior. Right. And so in September, 2019, I launched Sifermion, which is my capital. You know, I wanted to, you know, kind of learn the trading strategies, learn, learn kind of the ins and outs and uh, set up the back office administrative side of, of things. And then in October 2019, I launched Zima Red, which is just a content brand. It's, it's newsletters, blogs, podcasts, all about non-fungible tokens and the metaverse. Got so, it. yeah, that's basically uh, what, how, how I got to where I'm at today. So, again, for those that are not familiar, the term this, that Andrew is referring to and those that do focus on the space, metaverse, again, if you read Neil Stevenson's book from 1992, Snow Crash, it's where humans as avatars interact with each other and software agents in a three-dimensional space that uses the metaphor of the real world. And so there is this idea as we continue on on this path towards digitization where all things that were real assets will be represented as a digital asset, if you will. Um, and then, of course, vis-a-vis you know, distributed and decentralized architecture, vis-a-vis blockchains, uh, that will be able to be immutable and you'll have validators that can 
effectively uh, have not points of truth because that's not really what this is, but validation of that asset, if you will. And so there's all these different things that are happening here. But for those that are from the outside in, Andrew, that are learning about digital assets, they know what Bitcoin is now or they have a sense of it. Um, they're starting to hear about all the noise that's happening on Ethereum as it relates to decentralized finance. What is an NFT for those that have never heard that phrase before? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would just say, I like to describe it as just a unique digital asset. And, you know, just like uh, Bitcoins and dollar bills, they're fungible. So my Bitcoin is the same as your Bitcoin. Uh, my dollar is the same as your dollar. You know, they're interchangeable completely. But with a non-fungible token, they're completely unique. So I, I guess a, a good example would be um, a video game. So if I'm playing a video game and I receive some sword from defeating some boss or something like that, I get flaming sword number one, right? And then let's say you're also playing the game and you're, you defeat the sa same boss and you receive flaming sword number two. So even though that they, they have the same stats, the same you know, strength and attack or whatever, um, they are completely unique. And in theory, mine should be worth more because you know, I was the first person to ever defeat this boss and there's a lot of historical importance to that potentially, depending on you know the game, if it's a popular game or not. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of like the, the simplest way I like to explain it. And I like to use video games because I feel like um, you can get, there's so many different examples and so many different types of non-fungible tokens. I like to go with a simple video game. Okay. And let's talk about games then. So those that ha have been investing in esports have gotten familiar with very large uh, titles like Fortnite, PUBG and others out there, they see these massive stadiums being filled back in the day before COVID, um, where you have 10, 20, 30,000 people flooding a basketball stadium to watch matches of teams playing each other on the specific games that I mentioned before. And so I think people are starting to get a sense that that is a very large market. There's probably about 2 billion people out there who play video games every single day, if not on a more weekly basis. As it relates to blockchain and games in that world, a little history there, if you could, because for those that are not familiar, you know, blockchain gaming probably started roughly about six or seven years ago. You know, it predominantly was Bitcoin-based. Uh, you had things like Bitcoin Dice and a few other different things out there. Um, and to me, the games out there felt very Atari 1982-ish, where it was 256-bit, and you know, if you got to a certain level, that it would start pixelating, and that you know, basically the thing would start looking pretty gnarly. And so that was kind of like phase one of games. And so we've ushered, we've kind of ushered into a new world of games where a lot of these NFTs are becoming much more kind of realistic and valuable. Um, they are based off of sports players that you might like. You know, for instance. If you like football, uh, specifically soccer, I'm talking about, not uh, American football, and you like Cristiano Ronaldo, there are NFTs out there where you can play fantasy soccer and you can own a special supply, maybe 100 minted of this Cristiano Ronaldo. Talk to people about the kind of the, the maturation of where it was before and now to where it's going, you know, especially as it regards to NFTs and games. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. Back in the day, the, the blockchain games were extremely simple and, you know, Atari style, like arcade style. And now we're really seeing them mature into full-fledged, you know, AAA titles. There are no full-fledged AAA titles today, but we have the similar quality that's being created now. And if you're looking at the, 
NFT market as a, as a broad category, um, I'd say game assets make, make, makes a large portion of that market. And uh, I could describe game assets as, NF- as NFTs as, a, as an asset with high functionality within that universe. So within that game or ecosystem, there you can you know, use it for X and Y function. And then there's collectibles, which, have, which are assets with little to no functionality. And then you have you know, things like virtual worlds, which are basically these user-owned platforms that allow the users to build and do whatever they want on their land so they can you know, build a virtual house or they can build an e-commerce store or they can you know, build a mini game if they know how to code. And then you have things like crypto art, um, which is another massive market, and that's just art tokenized on a blockchain. So you're really looking at, um, there's, and then there's also another category, which I just call other, which includes things like uh, domain names, um, real, real property uh, with NFT items, NFT basically, uh, NFTs attached to them. So like wine or rare watches or property titles. Um, so that's a massive use case. So there's so many different parts of the NFT ecosystem, the NFT market, but I'd say game assets for me is the most promising because it's so, um, you can look at the game market today, something like, I think we have 2.7 billion gamers worldwide. I think it was $160 billion per year spent on gaming. Right, so um, incredibly large market just within that one within, within that one niche of NFTs, and uh, you today you have tons of people spending money on games like Fortnite and on games like you know, CS:GO on their uh, skins, which are like their you know the color of their outfits and stuff like that. And if you put that into a, a blockchain-based system, you're creating an open market for that. So right now, when gamers they spend money on skins, they're getting no money in return. So they spend a hundred bucks and they can't. They can't extract that asset and kind of sell it on an open market. It's just kind of a sunk cost. But with non-fungible tokens, you're allowing the marketplace to kind of decide and kind of uh, uh, creating their own economies, essentially. And then the game would just, you know, take a 5% market, market marketplace fee or something like that in order to sustain itself. Again, so, I, want to, I want to make sure people understand that. So in today's games on Fortnite, if you have children and you're listening and they've probably played this game, uh, as mine have too, they will spend money, they will spend these things called V-Bucks, and they will buy different skins, avatars, different items to make their player better. But at the end of the day, you, or actually your child or whoever's playing that game, does not own that asset, correct? Correct. And what we're talking about here is ownership of those assets that make them compostable, Yes. Yes, exactly. Talk to us about the importance of compostability as regards to this, because this is a major thing as it relates to NFTs in this world, about this idea of ownership of these digital assets, of these assets that you do not have access to today, and this idea of compostability where you can actually take it other places. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so right now I'd say, you know, I'd say 95% of the NFT ecosystem is on Ethereum. So because it's all on the same kind of infrastructure, you're able to take your non-fungible tokens and import them into different games. So right now you can't take your Fortnite skin and go into um, World of Warcraft or vice versa, right? They're totally contained separate universes. But with non-fungible tokens, I can take my Axie character, which are like these small little cute Pokemon creatures, and bring them into my virtual world, uh, Ethereum-based virtual world, and I can display them or I can you know, uh, sell them to someone or I can kind of do whatever I want with them. So it's almost an interoperability that, that these non-fungible tokens allows is, is almost creating a worldwide marketplace for all types of digital collectibles, digital games, virtual worlds, crypto art, et cetera, all into this one, uh, I'd say, 
24-7, uncensorable um, financial system that is Ethereum. So if you're, you're basically combining all these markets together into this massive uh, giants. And right now, it's, it's mostly on Ethereum. And there are a lot of uh, contenders coming out in, with their own non-fungible tokens. But I, you know, for the foreseeable future, I see Ethereum being the dominant player. But um, e even, even if Ethereum gets superseded by some other blockchain, I think that people will build bridges in order to interoperate, interoperate with Ethereum so because it's already kind of the dominant place with all the, all the users. So um, I think that that's an, a really, really important aspect that I actually don't touch upon too often. I'm really happy you brought that up. Why would... So Ethereum is first mover here, obviously, with the Turing completeness, the smart contracts, that kind of layer, this is kind of fed into the ERC-721 kind of phase, where effectively Ethereum is the, the, the kind of the hub and spoke, if you will. For those that are not familiar with Ethereum and its purposes in here in this world, it's kind of like the hub and spoke. It is just, it has fit perfectly for the use cases today. However, however, I want you to talk a little bit about, you mentioned this, that there may be other contenders and I have my own, you know, kind of intelligence on that and obviously been hearing things, but would love to hear from your perspective, why would there be other contenders, you know, if Ethereum has been kind of the first mover and has done very well thus far, what are some of the reasons why there are some contenders that are popping up in this world right now? Ooh, well, this <laughs> get a little controversial, but um, so my personal opinion, this is just a you know absolute opinion of that. That's it. But so I think that a lot of these chains they don't have a lot of usage, and so people are trying to drive usage to these chains to give them more value. Um, and you know, I, yeah, I, I don't want to dive into which chains, but yeah, that, that's kind of my thesis. Um, and people are they, they look at the non fungible token space and they see real usage, real products being built, real users, real players of these games. And they say, okay, this is a great use case uh, for, for this. Why don't we uh, try to build our own and bring some of those users over or create our own kind of network for, for the non-fungible token space. So um, that's kind of my, my theory. What, what, what do you kind of think? Well, I think that Ethereum has been overwrought and I think in a very positive way with decentralized finance where you're seeing this absolute Cambrian explosion, which I've been using for a few months now, uh, of growth of different platforms that are using Ethereum. They're all Ethereum-based predominantly. And you're seeing congestion. Um, it is a function where we saw in 2017 where CryptoKitties, and you can talk about that. That is an NFT. Again, you created these little cute collectibles that were NFTs. And everyone got wind of it. They jammed the system and it got highly congested and you really couldn't do anything on Ethereum. It took forever to get a transaction through. And so in my opinion, what we're seeing is that there's just been this utter explosion of interest and utilization in decentralized finance that for other things like gaming and NFTs, that people are starting to review other options because the transaction pending transactions are too high. The gas, and for those that don't understand gas, just in a very simplistic format, you know, if you have a transaction and you want to get it done incredibly fast, you're going to pay a little bit extra to get that done. And, you know, as of today, some of that gas, the extra fee is going to be quite high in the 50, 60, $70 range. And so, I'm starting to see and hear and think that there's going to be a 
some sort of a Moses splitting the ocean type of event where on one side, Ethereum will run DeFi and on the other side, potentially, this is all potential. This is not set in stone. These are all probabilities. But I'm thinking that NFTs and games may start looking elsewhere because they need to have higher transaction and throughput. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely correct. I've seen a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of teams that are actually moving to layer two solutions on Ethereum. So they still want the kind of the network that Ethereum has built and the, and the kind of the interoperability that we've mentioned before. So they want to still stay on Ethereum and use these as layer two solutions like Matic and XDAI and stuff like that. But we're also seeing purpose-built blockchains for the non-fungible token ecosystem, like Flow, who, uh, Flow blockchain, which was created by Dapper Labs, which were the creators of CryptoKitties. So we're seeing them, they built their own chain that's purposely built all for, all for kind of gaming and because uh, you need a lot of uh, high throughput for, for games and different um, fun- functions for NFTs. So um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. There, there is a big issue with gas, but we've also seen this before in the space where um, the gas price will you know, be totally absurd, they're very cost prohibitive, and then it kind of dies down for so-and-so reasons and things settle back down. And um, So I, I'm confident that over the long term, Ethereum will get its, get its you know, stuff together and, and sort this out. Um, but in the short term, it, whenever you get these high gas prices, you get all these people moving to and looking for other solutions to, to move to. Right. Um, and that, again, this is not to suggest anything. Obviously, this is just something that is observational. And so what I would love to think and have you kind of think through live is the marketplace for NFTs. So you mentioned, you know, gaming has been a piece of it. Collectibles have been a piece of it. Are there marketplaces? And obviously, this is a leading question. I know there are. But for the marketplaces out there, talk to us about the marketplaces. And if someone was completely coming into this cold and was listening to the show and said, okay, well, I'm going to start understanding and kind of getting my hands on some of these NFTs, where would they start going? What would they start doing? Yeah, I would suggest go to OpenSea.io which is kind of like the eBay for non-fungible tokens. And they're really interesting because they have a kind of a quasi-decentralized structure where they uh, don't hold any of the NFTs themselves, but they, they allow you to integrate your MetaMask wallet or your Web3 wallet into the platform. So basically I can have my you know, CryptoKitties on my wallet and you have your virtual land on your wallet and we can you know, interact with each other directly through OpenSeed. So it's kind of like a safe place for people to, to go and trade it and, and learn because there's a ton of information on there. And, um, and I, I think uh, OpenSea is in a really, really great position. And the way that they've built themselves is, is, uh, is I think they're going to do extremely well over the coming years. Um, and we're also seeing other competitors pop up like Rarible, um, which is focused on, originally focused just on art. And now we're seeing it move to, uh, sorry, crypto art NFTs. And now we're seeing it focus on um, kind of open itself up to other types of NFTs, like collectibles and game assets and stuff. Um, and then there's a, a ton of different, art-focused platforms like Super Rare, Async Art, Maker's Place, Known Origin, etc. And for those that are starting to understand the infrastructure behind NFTs, as you mentioned, this is all Ethereum-based. Does it need to have the same type of Oracle pricing kind of layer there where there's validation? What are some of the pieces that make all of these things work? So the pieces that make... NFTs work. Could you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, if I was a artist out there or I was a wealthy individual who had a whole bunch of art who wanted to digitize it, 
And I wanted to start the process of creating NFTs myself. You know, I was a creative that's listening to the show and I've been drawing these quirky kind of cool comics for the last 10, 20 years. How would someone actually start getting involved in this? Is there a place where they would just start going to create NFTs? What is kind of the infrastructure layer there? Do they need to have MetaMask, you know, combination there? What are some of the pieces, you know, if people wanted to start, you know, actually participating in the market besides OpenSea and Rarible and some of the other places? Yeah, so actually these marketplace platforms, a lot of them have, you know, these kind of storefront features where you can open up your own storefront and they enable you to create your own NFTs within that storefront. So they kind of do everything for you, which is great because it essentially requires, uh, from my understanding, zero coding skills whatsoever, zero kind of knowledge about the blockchain. You can just take, take an image, you know, put it, uh, upload it to the, to the marketplace and then it, uh, tokenize it. And then that marketplace will tokenize it for you and make it into an ERC721 um, token. So Pretty yeah, I, I, yeah I, I love how they, they're really bringing down the barriers so all types of people can get involved. Because what we've really seen is that the traditional art market, there's a lot of traditional artists that have made, you know, a ton of physical art. They're now looking at this art space as, okay, this is amazing. There's a thriving marketplace here. Because the, the crypto art community has just exploded in the past year or so. And these artists are coming on, they're either taking a photo of their piece or they're making a purely digital piece that doesn't even exist in the, in the physical realm. And they're uploading that to a platform, tokenizing it and then selling it for, you know, some of them go for 20 bucks, some of them go for 55,000. So there's a, a very, very wide range of, of prices. Got it. Really, really interesting. How would you say the total addressable market right now of NFTs, that, like the total size of the NFT market is relative to, you know, the $330 billion kind of encompassing digital asset market is how, how much of a market would you say it's, it's grabbing right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's extremely tiny right now. So the total lifetime trade volume for non-fungible tokens since essentially June of 2017, um, because that's when they first essentially, that's when they started on Ethereum is around $109 million of total lifetime trade volume. So extremely small. And we're seeing monthly trade volumes between two to three point five million dollars per month right now, and so so th- and that's been increasing rapidly. So that's that's really good news. Um, but if you look at the the number of users in the non fungible token ecosystem, I, I remember looking at a stat from OpenSea, which they published in April of twenty twenty, and they said that they had roughly twenty thousand unique wallets that have interacted with OpenSea, and OpenSea is like the number one. You know, exchanges. It's like the Coinbase, Binance, you know, Kraken all mixed together, right? So 20,000 total unique wallets, that is extremely small. And then I looked at, I got curious and I was like, okay, what is the total number of active wallets in the crypto ecosystem? And I think in 2019, I forget which month, but 2019, it was 42 million total active crypto wallets in, in the ecosystem. So um, if you're looking at just the total addressable market as people with existing crypto, you know, crypto natives with crypto knowledge for NFTs, that's a, it absolutely massive uh, you know growth potential right there mm-hmm. but what's really exciting about non-fungible tokens is that they're not really targeted towards crypto natives sure it helps to you know to, to understand all of that but it just it's more it's more human things it's not um this complicated financial structure and uh kind of this new money etc it's more like hey uh this video game you can own the items or hey you like arts there's a digital version or um virtual world you know you can own a piece of land right it's it's much more easy for people to understand. 
And what, what most companies in the NFT space are going for is to bring on mainstream people into the crypto ecosystem. And I think that that's a great growth strategy for crypto in general, because they'll get involved in NFTs and then they'll learn more about crypto and become more kind of hardcore, uh, you know, Bitcoiner in, in my mind. Right. And as Andrew is alluding to, one of the case in point, it seems that sports has been a first mover in the space. NBA has recently licensed with a project out there. And so they have a thing called NBA Top Shot, I believe it is. Um, and so this is not just, you know, small potatoes. This is, you know, very large, multi-billion dollar leagues. And as I mentioned also, uh, it seems that soccer has also been a first mover where we've seen, you know, other you know, company, other teams like Juventus and some others out there that are really embracing this because they also realize that, you know, we're in a COVID world, but also that they have hundreds of millions of fans throughout the world who can only participate in their being a fan by getting a jersey or by watching a match. And this is a way for them to have further participation. And so I, I think this is a, a very interesting space. And Andrew, thank you for coming on to kind of give us a primer about some of the things that are happening there. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? And you know, feel free to drop them. You'll know, link to Zima Red or anything else that you want to do. Yeah, I would say just DM me on Twitter or follow me on Twitter. My, my handle is Andrew Steinwald. It's S-T-E-I-N-W-O-L-D. And as for uh, Zima Red, if you just Google Zima Red, you'll either see the podcast or the newsletter. So uh, yeah, go listen and read some stuff if, if you, you know, want, to, want to learn more. Sounds good. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really great talking about NFTs and about this world. Appreciate it. I know everyone's going to be taking a look at this and uh, hopefully we can have you on in a few months and catch up and see how this uh, whole subsector and world of digital assets is kind of exploding. Yeah, David, thank you so much for having me. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.